You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 204 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. A while back I asked my dear listeners for suggestions regarding female guests, since 90% of my guests are male. So not long ago I got this email from a listener called Sam. I think you would find Shauna Holm interesting. If you haven't spoken with her before, I think your audience would appreciate her perspective and practices with mushrooms. So, you know, with that kind of uh, suggestion and delivered with such power, you know, I had no choice but to contact Shauna Holm. And so, without further ado, let's talk to her. So thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Could you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and, and what you do? Certainly. I I consider myself to be a modern medicine woman. I am of Gaelic or Celtic heritage, Scottish-Irish. I live in the Pacific Northwest currently. And about seven years ago... I was called to work with the mushroom. And prior to that, for the past eight years, I was, and still am, a voracious student of the mystery <laughs> and, and spent time working with some really incredible teachers, Dr. Brujoy being one of them who's since passed, and uh, a wonderful shaman teacher in the Yucatan and and at some point and and so I was teaching I was doing sessions with people that began as energetic sessions doing that kind of shamanic work and that kind of morphed into therapeutic sessions so I really am like a therapist and then the mushroom called to me and life as I knew it completely changed. And at the age of 48, I proceeded, and this was not planned, to have a year of monthly high-dose mushroom journeys. And it coincided with my marriage that was ending. And, and this took me into the depths of my my deepest wounding. And, and I ended up writing a book about that because I love to research and I was reading by then every book I could find on the subject. And I was looking for a woman's voice. Where are the women's voices in the psychedelic world? And what I wanted was, because what I noticed was there's, mm, there's quite an academic bent to this in the books out there, at least six, seven years ago, and, 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 you know, mostly dominated by, by guys and, and fantastic books, I will tell you, but I wanted, where's a woman's telling of what happens when you really bring this medicine into your life and it turns everything on its head. And so I ended up writing that book and it's a very raw, vulnerable telling. It is uh, a personal story, but it goes into, it goes into a connection with the spirit 
side of this medicine. And you don't hear certainly the the folks, you know, the PhDs and the MDs and the academics, they're not talk, talking about that. And probably rightly so, because they'll lose their funding and their credibility. <laughs> but this is very ancient medicine. It is an ancient teacher. And 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 because I had these years prior of, of shamanic study, deep psycho-spiritual study, my approach to it was from a place of ritual, I I entered with an open and humble heart going in to seek wisdom. I, I realized very early on, this is a portal. It's a portal. And so that happened for a year and it just absolutely changed everything for me. And so my work continued to develop and now what I do with people is one-on-one -on -one retreats. I offer something very unique so that it's one-on-one. -on -one. They come to my home on a Sunday afternoon. They leave Friday morning. It is very deep psycho-spiritual work, and it involves time in the forest. Uh, food plays a big role. I mean, it's like basically you're at the kitchen table of a, a medicine woman, and and I do not look to the Huffington Post or the New York Times to tell me, you know, what's real. I look to nature and I look to the ancients. And so I provide, I imagine, a very different point of view. I have basically apprenticed myself to the mushroom teachers for the past seven years and will do so for the rest of my, my life. I, I don't do it monthly anymore. Good God, no. That, that was the first year of what I realized was a kind of soul training, if you will, you know. And I always joke <laughs> that there aren't too many middle-aged ladies in the suburbs going off into the forest at night <laughs> and eating five dried grams. But that was me for about a year. And, and it absolutely blew my mind. And also what happened over the course of that time was I sort of cumulatively came into a form of mediumship. Now, this is also a very ancient form of shamanic practice and really has long been the domain of women. So you can think of the oracles at Delphi, uh, the, uh, uh, um, the vulva of the Norse tradition. These were women who were seers and they would ingest some kind of psychoactive active ungent and it would take them into the realms and they would bring guidance and prophecy. And so what has happened for me is now when I do go in, I speak in perfect poetry and, and these beautiful messages pour forth. And so that has, I've written a few books now, but that resulted in a book called Poetic Whispers from the Green Realms. And, and they're just beautiful messages. So yes, that's a rather long-winded uh, answer, Alex, but there's a lot's gone on these past seven years. <laughs> is it the Cubensis mushroom or which mushroom is it? Primarily Cubensis, but I do live in the Pacific Northwest. So we have cyanescens that grow all around. And right now we're in mushroom season. So it's beginning of November. It's nice and wet and moist and it's perfect mushroom weather. So those can be found if you know where to where to find them. Are they eaten dried or or, uh, or fresh? Dried, dried. I've never I've never had them fresh. I always have them dried. 
So my experience with in all these different uh, psychedelic plants uh, is that th- there's a certain uh, uh, feminine quality to them. Uh, and uh, all the guys I know, they say the same. Um, but um, so I'm thinking if you're a woman... Do you get like a, an overdose of that or, or do, do women experience some sort of masculine thing that might not, the men might not notice? Well, that's an interesting question because I speak to a lot of different people who've worked with this medicine and they will often speak to me after, after the fact. And so they want help deciphering the experience. And I have found that for both men and women, it's not so much that, but it's more like it opens corridors within the mind and it brings to the surface uh, insights that need to happen so that person can change a patterning or change a course of their life, change a relationship they have been in. It can bring incredible illumination for them on something that is relevant to to, to their life. People often talk about there, there's definitely a sense of, of uh, uh, the presence of another. But that is so interesting because in speaking with both, some people experience feminine, some people experience masculine. I've spoken to a few different people who've actually connected with loved ones who've passed away on the medicine. I had one woman who had over an hour-long conversation with her mother who died a number of years ago, and there was a lot left unsaid, and they they closed a lot of, of sort of open ends when in in that conversation, like she came out of that, uh, just feeling wonderful, wonderful. So, so yeah, I haven't noticed that so much. When when I was working with the medicine that first year, I had an experience about midway through where a being came, because owls were coming to me left, right, and center, and a white owl came and then morphed into a woman, and that became my spirit familiar. But again, I've worked with uh, other people who had a, a sense of a, a male presence. So, so that's just very interesting that you would you would bring that up, Alex, because because in contrast, uh, ayahuasca is that's that that uh, grandmother presence that's that's very very feminine. But I think the mushroom mm, it can kind of go either way. It could also be that uh, men who do these ceremonies they need. Uh for healing purposes, feminine energy. So might be why they, if you, because if you have an, well, well, my healing process was uh, dealing with a lot of uh, anger and revenge kind of emotions, and which are classed under, I guess, masculine energies like power and strength and st- that those things. So it might have needed feminine energy to like uh, let go and that kind of thing. Uh, but it's true, ayahuasca uh, uh, feels like a sort of grandmother-mother kind of uh, energy. I always perceived the mushroom as as uh, more trickstery or childlike. Doesn't mean I mean child. I mean it's an, it's child older than me, but you know, uh, 
like uh, uh, a bit childy, childish, not childish as in an, in a negative sense. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, uh, <laughs> yeah, it can be full of mischief in, in a delightful sense. And uh, that, yeah, that's, that's for sure. And, and yes, that trickster, there's a great sense of fun and there's a definite identifiable humor associated with the mushroom. And when I hear certain stories, certain experiences people had, it just cracks me up because it's like you can recognize it immediately. Like, yep, that sounds, that sounds like mushroom humor to me. And, and so, yeah, and there's a, a kind of raucousness to it as well, which I love. And, 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 you know, one thing I love about the mushroom is there is no, there is no uh, formal ritual really associated with it. I see it as kind of rogue. And, and the mushroom said to me once, I am that which will not be legitimized. I am that which will not be civilized. I am a mystery. And so I quite like that because it's really up to the individual in terms of how they're going to approach this, how they're going to take it, what they're going to create around it, and what they bring to the table. So, I mean, I, I like that because I'm all about the individual. I've had a few experiences with mushrooms. And in one experience I had with a friend, uh, we were in the experience uh, realizing the solution to all the problems of the world and how mushrooms could heal everybody. And it's a long story, but basically in that experience, we were like, let's just uh, because you have to be like like gay people you know you have to be in the closet because if you step out of the closet then you might lose your job depending on where you live but i live in a place where you could get in trouble if you even mention taking what they view as legal drugs so we were talking about no let, let's just like uh like jesus did like risk it all and you know, uh, convince the world and go out and heal everybody. And then the next day when you wake up from it, you still remember it, but realize, ah, uh, I mean, it's so hard to like bring the thing into reality because you're like, uh, those logical thoughts return when you're not in the mushroom, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. And I, you know, (laughs) I will often when I'm talking to people who've had an experience on the medicine say, okay, so how are we going to, how are you going to bring this into your life? Because it will bring tremendous insight. And, and, and for instance, when I was experiencing that first year on, I call it the medicine on medicine towards the end, I would often find myself in conversation with a voice that was sort of had authority, but incredible, immense kindness and very wise. And it would point out different things to me, like, you know, you could have couched that differently with so-and-so, or, you know, your daughter needs this and you really need to pay attention to that. And I would get out of the medicine, I, I would finish with it, and then I would go and make it right. So I would, I, I was often just getting you know, very helpful insights 
and 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 then I would put them into effect in my life, and they made tremendous changes. Like I really feel like I'm a better woman as a result of my work with the medicine. And yes, it can give you delusions of grandeur and all of this. And like anything, you come out of it, and then it's important to assess the journey. I look at it in the same way, similar to a dream, in that you're in the vast realms of the deep psyche, psyche being the Greek word for soul, and the psyche is nature, and nature speaks in symbol and metaphor. And so often you can't take it exactly literally, right? You've got to play with what are the, you know, what what was the symbol? symbolic meaning of this and then you can get so much from that and I can give you a quick example of that I had a lovely man contact me the day after he had what people would call a bad trip and he took five dried grams and he was in a kind of psychic hell for over four hours he found himself in a dungeon and he could not for the life of him get out he could not escape and it was it was horrendous, and he really was kind of afraid for his own sanity. I mean, it was really shaken. And, and, and sometimes, you know, a journey can do that, as we know. And so we were, he, he contacted me, and I, we did a session that day. And I said to him, you know, I, th I thought about the symbolism of being caught in a dungeon. And then I said, where in your life do you feel trapped? And he sat back and he, he said, everywhere, everywhere. And I said, well, what's going on? And, and he had business, you know, two businesses he was running. He, he had tremendous, tremendous pressure that he had created for himself and, and risks that he'd taken and, and things were coming to a head. And every month was kind of a dance as to which bills get paid. And oh, by the way, his partner just had a baby. And you know, there was a lot on this guy's plate. And so that was revealed. And then we went into the deeper whys of now, hang on a second, <laughs> where's the cowboy in you? Like, what's going on? Who is the one who feels he must take these kinds of risks? Like, what are you trying to prove to yourself? Or, or whose eyes are you dancing to? Do you see? And so we went deep into this incredible conversation. And you could see the lights going on in his head. He was getting it. He was seeing the genius of the mushroom. In other words, there was going to be no dancing in the light realms for him that night. The mushroom was saying, "Ah, uh -uh, dude, you are stuck. And you're going to see this. And you're going to do something about it. And he has since changed everything. And so there also is the, the importance of, especially with some of these perceived bad trips, if you can look at them symb symbolically, they can give you uh, some very, very important information that you can then take into your life and make incredible changes. For like, I can't remember now, but for about, seven eight years i worked with uh, these medicines and it was initially uh, my teacher has always been ayahuasca and every like two or three years i go down to the amazon and do ceremonies and currently it's been the longest time since i've gone back because the distance between these times get longer each time because i need to i don't need need it as much uh, but anyway 
my question is regarding the in between the times I go down I you know because it can be a couple of years I often partake in in um, uh, I usually do it around Easter because uh, I'm thinking you know it's a, I'm not Christian or anything but I'm thinking it's a pagan thing to crucify yourself uh, it's a good uh, rebirth and that's so I usually do a, a psychedelic ceremony and uh, depending on what I can get my hands on it might differ year from year if it's uh, mushrooms or if uh, just uh, smoke DMT or whatever it could be and my question is regarding that in in the recently I've uh, when I've done such a ceremony uh, the most recent one I did uh, as soon as it began um, I felt like um I mean, I wanted to do it, but it, it was almost like, you know, if you go on a holiday to the same place every year, eventually the one year you're going to go, I'm, I'm getting bored of this scenery. And you, you know, it doesn't matter what psychedelic you do, there's a certain f- um, feeling and scenery, which, which is lovely, but I don't know, I just had this feeling that uh, um, I, I've seen enough. Or like I know the thing healing wise I need to do and I might don't feel I I mean there's not I mean I'm sure there's more things I could learn but um, I don't know it's hard to formulate what I mean but it just feels like the last time I did it it was like oh I just can't wait till it's over because I felt almost bored Uh, uh, but I'm also at the same time uh, looking forward to it so it's a very schizophrenic emotion I have <laughs> but I don't know what, what what that is you know I mean it could be a number of things it it could well be Alex that you don't need to do it maybe the medicine is saying you know you're you're good you're good you're, you're good and maybe you're good for two years five years or six months it really comes like okay it's time and it's 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 a really profound experience I mean, I, I, I get that because certainly now I only go in when the mushroom calls me, which may sound strange, but it speaks inside my my head, which welcome to my world. I speak to spirits. And so it will call me in no uncertain terms and, and in I go. Um, so, so yeah, it may, it may well be that, yeah, it's just time to take a break. You don't. You don't need it. I, I remember going to Scotland three years ago, and I so wanted to experience the mushrooms in a stone circle. And I had my hands on some mushrooms when I was in Edinburgh. And then and then it turned out it was never, it was just never quite the right time to do it. And I ended up having to just kind of give them back to the 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 land. But that was a kind of teaching for me because I went into those stone circles and they are very much alive. They're placed on these geomagnetic hotspots. There's quite a lot to them and we are mostly water. So you're receiving a kind of charge from these places. And and I had experiences that I never, ever would have thought possible. And so really what it was showing me was, look, you're welcome to come visit. I mean. 
use these mushrooms when you want, but you don't, you certainly don't need them. And I, and I certainly don't feel I need them. In other words, you can access these magical places in different ways. It's not going to look just like a mushroom journey, but, but that there are other ways as well of, of uh, connecting with those, those realms, shall we say. So it was a really good, was a good lesson. And then also sometimes I've had this happen once in seven years where I, I just kind of felt like maybe I should go in. I went in on the spring equinox and it was, yeah, I couldn't wait to be done. I was like, this is like, nothing's really happening. And sometimes it's just not happening. It's just simply not happening. And, and then we can, we can read that however we, we wish. So so yeah, that was a couple of years ago. And then I don't think I went in the rest of that year, but then I got called. Actually, I think I did get called in December over the solstice. And I actually like going in over the winter solstice. There's something very magical about going in on the, the longest day of the year. But anyway, yeah, I mean, I I, I, I would just leave, leave it alone, right? And And just see the next time you get called, if you do. Maybe you do, maybe, maybe you don't. I mean, I, I see we are constantly evolving. And, and, and for someone who has dedicated themselves to this kind of exploration, we're evolving with this as well, right? It's not going to stay the same. Thank goodness. Another aspect that's really changed that also almost makes me afraid to do it because I don't want to be reminded of it almost is this feeling because since the last time the ones I do like I mentioned during Easter and that that's just me and a cedar and it, the ones with the, the the real ones is when I go down and have a proper shaman and it's completely you can't compare them but um, since I went down to Peru uh, I've had uh, a, a child. So what's happened is that previously, before this child, you know, when I experienced the infinity of of life in this one, and even if you die, it's eternal, and you're like, uh, you know, the this mystery that's you can't explain, and uh, all that. I didn't have a problem with it because it was all amazing and you know when you die you move on to who knows and it's it's all beautiful and it's I don't have a problem with it but when I had this child uh, it became like and also if I do psychedelic research I feel like I'm uh, abandoning it I mean leaving I mean I'm losing the connection with the child and I'm all you know I used to uh, this the it helped me not to be afraid of dying, but when I, since I had a child, it kind of flipped to I don't want to die because I lose the child, and you know, so it's like it's it's really like, and uh, I, um, uh, you know, if I die and whatever happens, you know, I'll break this connection. It, so I don't know if you've heard anything about that before. Well, I it sounds to me, Alex, like the medicine is is in its genius, of course. I mean, it, it's pointing out something that's something that's very integral 
to your life experience now, and that is the indescribable love you feel for your child. And and yeah, the thought of dying is it takes on a very different uh, perspective now. And and I mean, I wouldn't take it much beyond that other than I mean that's how I would look at it like it's it's this is you are in a whole new mindset now your father your father and that changes everything I I you know I will say when when I was working with the mushroom seven years ago I had an 11 year old daughter and a 13 year old daughter and I was divorced and so I would only work with it on a weekend when the girls were with their father so there were no children around and 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 like I said, I would get different tips and little heads up like, OK, you could do this. You could do this a little differently. And and so it, it helped me as a mother ultimately. And and also I would go through like, my goodness, feeling these these experiences of indescribable love for my for my children, like just absolutely immense, which is why I feel like it made me a better mother because it also made me see how fleeting that time is so really i just it speaks to me of of just your immense love for your child and how every everything has changed of course even your perspective of death because of course children have a tendency to do that don't they having a child it changes your view of many things and it's a bit ironic because these medicines have helped me not be a hoarder, let go of things, move on. And then you get a child and then you like go right back to this, uh, like you're hoarding and you can't let go of the child. It becomes like the, the only thing you uh, hold on to, you know. So it's like, because if, if I would have died before the child, I would be fine, you know, people you love. Yeah, but you can let them go and you can move on. But that's it's different you know yeah yeah well i mean love is a mysterious thing you know and i don't know i i think this is very endearing to hear this and very touching you know i mean everything's changing for you and and also by the way we have to look at you know we are nature and you're a father now and things do change in terms of you realize you know what i need more i need to have stability for this child. I need to have certain things for this child. You know, like a lot of that also just is just kind of common sense to me. And I will tell you, as a mom of a of a 20-year-old and 18-year-old now, that eventually that does shift because it's we're always shifting, right? And and so that will shift and, and you won't you'll be able to let some of that go. But how old is your child? It's coming soon uh, going to be three. Oh my god I love that age Aww. yeah well you know you're you're where you're at I think the medicine has brought that out beautifully for you and uh, you know I wouldn't overanalyze it I would just just enjoy being a dad and, and being you know the provider the protector the big love that your child needs I mean I just think that's beautiful it's quite funny, actually, because um, I've gone and done these ceremonies with my wife. She wasn't my wife at the time, but uh, we were together for many years. And I always said that I don't want children because, um, uh, I mean, uh, maybe adopt, but I, I, 
I had a cynical view of having why bring another child to this world and that kind of thing, and also uh, having been abandoned by my father as a child. I mean, just didn't want children, and then. Uh, after just and she she had I didn't know this at the time but she had uh, uh, accepted her fate that she would not have a child because apparently I didn't want one and um, then after one of the ceremonies the next day I just said to her ah, okay let's let's do one <laughs> so I always uh, I've used I'm always joked that since I started working with I if Ayahuasca tells me to do something I do it no questions asked I just follow orders that's uh, how I feel <laughs> like I, like I, even with the podcast <laughs> it's also the podcast that Ayahuasca told me to because I've been thinking of, should I do a podcast and Ayahuasca said yeah just do it just do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I'm so glad you did yeah well <laughs> yeah you know actually that's funny you would say that because there's a woman named Dr. Rachel Harris and she wrote a whole book I think it's called Speaking with Ayahuasca. And I actually interviewed her for the Psychedelic Salon podcast. She would be amazing for your show. And I'll hook you guys up afterwards because she did a whole survey. She's a psychotherapist, retired. She did a whole uh, survey of, of people who've worked with ayahuasca to see how it has changed their life. And, and the ayahuasca told her to do that book. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes it, it gives you quite good advice. Well, there's another topic that you know a lot about that I'm interested in, and it concerns bees. And uh, could you talk a bit about bees and beekeeping and all that? Oh, sure. Of course, yeah. I, I, I have been beekeeping now for probably 10 years, and, and these are European honeybees. And, and I wrote a book that I also have on my website called Honeybee Wisdom, A Modern Melissa Speaks. And in that book, it's not so much on beekeeping, but it 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 explores, first of all, what I think are the multiple factors contributing to the incredible weakness and hopefully not the demise of our, our, our honeybees. And by the way, it's not just the honeybees who, who are imperiled. It's also all manner of bees and pollinators. In any case, and then I explore the medicines of the hive. And so why don't I focus on that a little bit? Because, because honeybee medicine is, it's ancient. Honey itself is a very ancient medicine. It was made into mead, which is a type of honey wine. And it's very interesting to note that back in the day, centuries and centuries ago, alcohol was used as a solvent in so you you would have you'd have mead or you'd have ale and the alcohol content would only be 2 to 5% and then it was what you added you would be adding different medicinal herbs so of course ale was for what ails you and mead could be very medicinal and then of course you could add psychoactives to that as well and they certainly did and and it just it has tremendous healing properties. You can apply it topically on on wounds, and they will heal. And then you have other medicines of the hive as well. Propolis is is something that the bees will when they're out there they're collecting not just pollen and nectar. They're also collecting water, and they are collecting exudates from the trees, the saps from different trees and bushes, and they will mix those with constituents in their belly. 
and they produce this gorgeous smelling, rusty red colored, sticky substance called propolis. And they will line the interior of their hive with that. They'll, they'll put it around the entrance. And so propolis comes from, it, it, uh, pro means before, polis is the city. So before the city, so the, you know, the entire entrance before the city of the bees would be lined in propolis. So as the bees going in and out of the hive, they don't have their own immune system. So propolis would function as the immune system for the hive. So it's incredibly, incredibly medicinal for the bees and it's incredibly medicinal for us. And there have been a number of studies done on propolis where it will cause apoptosis in cancer cells, which means it causes cancer cells to just destruct. And so there's a lot of exciting things being discovered about what it will do for, for cancer and also viruses. So, so people would tincture propolis, you tincture it in alcohol. So that is an amazing medicine. And bee pollen is also fantastic, loaded with protein, and a lot of athletes will, will use it. It will give you incredible endurance and energy. And then there is the venom itself. And I love to talk about that. And if you go on YouTube and you type in my name, Shauna Home, type in Shauna Home Bee Venom Therapy, I gave a talk for about an hour to a beekeepers association on the healing benefits of bee venom therapy. Bee venom is a medicine. Now, Paracelsus, who was uh, a physician and also a magician and an alchemist in the 16th century, he said everything, <laughs> it's a, it's a, everything is a medicine or a poison. It's all about the dose. And so with bee venom therapy, it has long been understood, it's long been known that bee venom will cure, um, uh, oh God, the word just went, um, um, arthritis arthritis and and so in and it will cure gout in fact charlemagne and also ivan the terrible both cured their gout with with bee stings and it's also amazing for cancer and i mentored under a woman named amber rose phd and she is well into her 70s now but she was an acupuncturist she practiced five element chinese acupuncture and she stung on acupuncture uh, points. She used bees on acupuncture points and she had extraordinary success so that she had one man with MS. After seven months of bee stings, he, he, he didn't need his wheelchair anymore. She's had tremendous success with people with AIDS, with all kinds of autoimmune disorders. Bee venom therapy will not cure something like MS, but it will alleviate the symptoms tremendously. And I stung a woman with MS and, and, and she did very well with that. There is a protocol, it takes two years of using bee venom therapy for Lyme disease, which I don't know if you guys have that in Sweden, but we've got a big problem here in the States with Lyme disease, which, which you get from tick bites. And, and so it's, it's just extraordinary medicine. And so I, I stung myself for a few months just so I could have my own experience and speak to it. And at one point I got up to 60 stings a week. And so what you do is you first start stinging. You start with a test sting just by the knee and you immediately take out the stinger and you wait 20 minutes. And I would joke with each person just saying, if you're still alive, we'll keep stinging. And really actually allergies to bee stings are more rare than people realize. 
a, a true allergy to bee sting is anaphylactic shock. But people who get stung and their hand blows up like a cake in the oven and they're super itchy and red and it looks terrifying, that's actually a proper immune response to the bee sting. And for beekeepers, that would happen maybe the first month when they start. And then after that, those symptoms go away. But you continue to receive the medicine every time you get stung. And one thing that I noticed, which really blew my mind, was I, after a month or so of bee stings, I was feeling on top of the world. I was, I was just, my girls were like, God, mom, you're in such a good mood. And I was like, I know, I, I really am. And only to find out that the venom affects the serotonin in your brain. So it's really excellent for people with depression. So anyway, so, so, so there's a lot to, to discover there. And, and I cover all of that in my, in my book, which is an ebook on my, on my website. And then in that talk, I told you, you can watch on, on YouTube and then you can type in for people interested in bee venom for Lyme disease. If you type in bee venom, Lyme disease, Amber Rose is her name. You'll get this website and she's put the whole protocol up there for, for anyone to find. So my feeling with all of this, because people might think, well, why are you stinging with bees? They die after you sting, you know, and they're so imperiled. Well, here's the deal. If people, if the average Joe understood the extraordinary medicine that is contained in the hive and within the bee herself, maybe just maybe they would stop spraying their garden willy-nilly with chemical pesticides that are absolutely decimating this planet. And, and start growing more, more flora and fauna, you know, more, more native flowers, which is what they need. Because the way that you, that we lose a, a creature is, is, is loss of habitat. And so the bees, once there were verdant fields of, and meadows everywhere, and now there's grass and it's, you know, mowed over and, and and no one wants dandelions so they lace these these vast areas with pesticides and what they need is meadows they need wildflowers they need a diversity of of good food and and so having a garden and and with that in mind will do so very much actually to to help the populations of the bees to increase their population and then of course we also have to we have to stop purchasing chemicals. You know, we have to stop putting chemicals on, on the land. I mean, they're carcinogenic and, and, and just incredibly debilitating for nature. So, yeah, what else would you like to know about bees? <laughs> well, what could, uh, what could a person do that, like I do, live in a house and have a patch of land uh, uh, but don't have time to you know you keep bees but we, is it just to plant more flowers and uh, what could you do well that every flower that you plant is potential food for a bee what i would do not all they don't take food from every flower and so i would go online and i would look up in your area best flowers for pollinators and then plant those flowers in your garden because that tiny creature is flying around looking for food 
every single day and they'll go for up to three miles from their hive. And so actually, I think even beyond that, in any case, so, so yeah, just you putting those, it's like, in other, in other words, you have no idea what you're helping. So, so, so don't underestimate that it will, it will help tremendously. Because I have noticed myself that uh, every summer there's less, less bees. Usually you hear them a lot, but sometimes like last summer, I was like, where, where's the, where are the bees? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there are a number of factors. I think right now, I think right now, God, they have so many threats, but one of the greatest threats is all of the Wi-Fi, all of this electromagnetic pollution, because the bees are highly, highly sensitive to the electromagnetic waves. And so what's going into our our air now is all of this Wi-Fi and all of this, like now what they're doing in the States, I hope they're not doing it where you are, but they're, they're, they're getting all ready to put it to implement, impose, I should say, their 5G network. It's sort of like a slow boiled frog. It started with 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G. And, and what happens is this is putting out these waves that we can't see and and they're attracted to water so they're they're affecting us i think cancer rates they're already high but i think they're going to go through the roof but this is having a very detrimental effect on the honeybees and also migrating birds so what what essentially it's doing is it's it's running interference within nature's electromagnetic field there's the natural field and then there's all this man-made stuff all the cell phone wireless stuff it's wreaking havoc and so there's that is and i think with this 5g we're, we're going to be in serious trouble because it's going to affect the birds as well and i keep worrying about rachel carson wrote a book in the 60s called silent spring and uh so you know i just i pray that that's that's not going to be the case and then of course yeah the willy-nilly spraying of of chemicals and it's big business. And here in the States, we have different, you know, you live in a town and then there's the municipal government and the counties and whatnot, and they will form contracts with these chemical companies. And then they will spray all over the place, including, you know, parks and, and forests and whatnot. They'll just spray willy nilly all these chemicals and they'll decide that a certain plant is invasive. So they have to spray to get rid of that plant, which makes me, I mean, I realize there are some plants that are invasive, of course, but it definitely makes me go, hmm, what's really going on here? You know, is this just essentially commercial so they can use more chemical pesticides? So that's just been going on for year after year after year, and it's cumulative. So yeah, their their presence is going down as well as their, their terrain disappearing, their forage disappearing. So yeah, a garden is very, very, very important, and how you how you care for that garden as well. I think that uh, bees and especially bumblebees, they're like the only insect that kind of behaves like like mammals in that you can almost like get a connection with it. With it, and I remember one time I even managed to pet a bumblebee, uh, but they they. 
they behave more like when you meet a cat in the forest, you meet a bee. That's how my feeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is a, a, what is like an old saying about telling the bees. In other words, for the honeybees, it was understood for centuries, if not longer, that whoever the beekeeper was who tended to those hives, the beekeeper formed a relationship with their honeybees. And so then when that beekeeper died, it became, it was very important that someone tell the bees that they died because there were times when a beekeeper died and then all his bees flew away or, or, or died. So that's just very, very interesting. And, you know, Rudolf Steiner spoke a lot about this. He gave a series of lectures on the, on the bees. I'm a big, I really appreciate what, what he brought into the world. Steiner, he was a multifaceted genius, but he spoke to the, 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 the hive, first of all, is like a single being and every, every bee in there is like a cell of, of that being and the importance of this profound connection between the beekeeper and the hive that he or she is, is tending. Every winter I discover bees that come into my house and to die because I mean, it's warm, so they go in and then they die. It's normal. But uh, sometimes you, I discover a, a queen that's come in and died. And I'm, I'm wondering, is that a big problem or has it been replaced uh, already? Or uh, because the queen is so important. She's so important. So uh, that's in the fall that happens? Always, uh, yeah. When Depending on when the winter comes, they always come in. Because it's so warm inside. They come in and die. It's, been, it's, it's common. I live in a cold area. So every winter, everybody has bees who come in and to die, you know. Right. Right. Okay. Well, the queen, that's interesting. I mean, unless she's maybe from, you know, hatched and it too late and, and they, they maybe, maybe from a hive that swarmed too late in the season, because sometimes that happens because what should happen is the queen is at that point, she is in the hive and the population of the hive dwindles to maybe about 10,000 bees, just enough who can keep her warm over the course of the winter, right? So she shouldn't be going anywhere <laughs> unless, like I said, maybe they swarmed very late in the season for whatever reason. But again, you know, at this point, we just, who knows? They're so, they get very confused also with all the sort of cell phone, Wi-Fi radiation. I mean, that sends them off. They don't know where to flow or also with the pesticides. They also get confused. It can do just wreak havoc on, on, on these tiny creatures. And so they will do things that are completely out of character. One of my pet peeves is when I see people who react like they're going to die as soon as a bee enters the scene. <laughs> Because I, I found that, you know, if you just, like, relax, they I've never been stung by a bee. I've, I mean, unless... The only time I've been stung is when I've stepped on one by accident, you know, or something like that. But, you know, if it's just buzzing around me, it never stings you. No, but I think there are also... People will confuse honeybees with hornets, or here we have yellow jackets, and and... That's a different team altogether. <laughs> and they can be certainly more 
aggressive and and more more prone to sting. But yeah, honeybees for the most part, unless they're really threatened, they're they're not so aggressive. Unless of course those are the the Africanized honeybee, and that's a whole other different animal. And you guys don't have them there anyway, so it's not a concern. No, they'll freeze to death eventually if we get them. So where you live now is it a part of of the world where they're discussing making uh, mushrooms legal? Well, there's a lot of talk about that. I'll say there's an author researcher named Michael Pollan who he wrote a best-selling book a number of years ago called The Omnivore's Dilemma, which was absolutely fantastic for anyone who hasn't read it. And after that, he's he's been featured in many documentaries about organic and biodynamic farming and he's just done so much to raise awareness around all of that. And earlier this summer, he launched quite the curveball into the mainstream. And he wrote a book called How to Change Your Mind. I forget the rest of the title, but it is it goes deep into the science of psychedelics and and what they will do, what they can do for PTSD and for ending anxiety, end of life anxiety, and for people with depression and whatnot. And and I can't think of a better person to do this because he's a very serious researcher and he's incredibly well respected. And and you know, mainstream folks have so much propaganda in their head around all of this, right? Because this stuff's been these substances have been propagandized for so for decades now. But he really he really puts forth the science behind this and and how efficacious these substances can be for a lot of issues we're experiencing now. So I think that is going to help tremendously with moving this forward to hopefully be legalized. Now, I, I speak about it openly because there's no law against talking about it. We can talk about this till the cows come home. And by God, you know, Michael Pollan just wrote a best-selling book about it. But it is, it's really appalling when you think about it, that something that grows out of the earth would be because a group of people decided so that it's made illegal and people's lives can be destroyed because they chose to explore the mysteries of their consciousness. I mean, to me, that speaks to a slave society. And I do think that we all are, all of us are in a slave society. And we ourselves have some serious growing up to do and have got to hopefully see our way through this into sovereignty because because who gets to tell you you can't explore your own consciousness what is going on here what's going on is we have a guardian ward relationship and so in any case and then i also i think what might happen first is perhaps it will be if it's made legal at all, only, only maybe psychiatrists will be able to use it. And I do, I must say, I mean, there's some good folks out there, but I do see a kind of elbowing going on in terms of the psychiatric community kind of 
you know, elbowing their way up front saying, ah, we'll handle this, we'll handle this, you know, and the average person, no, 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 you'll need a psych, you'll need a clinical psychiatrist, you know, to, to, to explore this medicine with. And I can't think of anything I would rather not do than lie in some guy's office and do the medicine. And since when is, or any of those schools anyway, preparing people for exploring numinous states and 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 possibly speaking to spirits i mean come on it's ridiculous in in any case so yeah i mean we'll 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 see what happens with with all of that but i'll tell you with cannabis cannabis right now becoming legal all over the place and i think canada as well definitely the path is being paved at the same time i would just be careful because cannabis has changed so dramatically. It is a phenomenal medicine for a number of of things. And like anything, it can be abused. And I also, I don't know, I see I don't trust government and, and with good reason. And I study the maxims of law. And a maxim is a principle of truth. It's always consonant with logic and reason. And so there's an, in other words, there is true today as they were 10,000 years ago. And one of the maxims of law says favors from government often carry with them enhanced measures of regulation. Do you see? So, and of course, you know, cannabis is going to be heavily regulated. And I can assure you also, they will make darn sure government and otherwise that they're making a huge profit off of it because that's really what it comes down to. So yeah, we'll see what happens with psilocybin you know i was so sorry to see it made illegal in was it amsterdam but i think you can get the truffles am i right yes it's true they they when they the truffles are the same it's the same effect in the end and uh, uh, they could they couldn't make the truffles illegal because I can't remember exact details, but it was something about if they made truffles illegal, they had to have to make tomatoes illegal also or something because the chemical similarities were similar. Some vegetable, I can't remember, but so the truffles you can't make illegal because they're so close to something else. Interesting. In, oh, that's great. <laughs> well, that's good. And that that was also... that's. Uh, I've told this story before, but uh, the where I live, uh, mushrooms became illegal because one person in the 80s walked down the street naked. And if people who make things legal or, legal or illegal, they should all try it themselves before they, they make the ch- decision. Because if you take mushrooms, there's, it's completely logical. Why shouldn't you walk down the street naked? And uh, and in, in Amsterdam or in Holland, uh, when they made mushrooms illegal there it was because one girl got injured because she didn't think about set and setting and she just walked around and fell off a bridge or something Uh, but it's all based on one incident i mean like imagine if you would base alcohol on one incident you'd i mean there's uh, one incident every minute (laughs) well same with same with pharmaceutical drugs Right. Look at the opioids, how cripplingly addictive they are. And they, you know, people I think it's hundreds of thousands of people die every year from from overdosing pharmaceutical drugs. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's absurd. 
and too bad. And also this thing that you said about if a licensed psychologist or therapist would give you the medicine, or mushrooms or, or whatever it is, I I wouldn't feel comfortable with the with the setting of that. I mean, in some office or something. And I can't imagine them sitting out around the campfire or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if it were to come to that, of course, there will be people who would be okay with it because that's their association because they don't know anything else, right? Like they would just wouldn't, they've had no experience with it. They look to someone like that as an authority. So probably be fine. But I think for many folks, that would be the last thing that they would, they would want. I mean, I, I like, I prefer myself to be out in nature if possible. I love to be in a forest, obviously a very safe place or, or just in the sanctity and safety and beauty of my own bedroom you know i mean i like to be lying down uh eyes closed in darkness or by candlelight and well no not usually candlelight i don't want to be anyway in any case it's usually darkness but but you know what i mean like in the comfort of of my own my own place i actually on my website because of michael poland's book i was inspired and i put together a course an audio course it's called visionary mushroom practicum and I'm selling it on my website. And I, I, in that course, endeavored to cover every aspect I could think of, which includes set and setting and what to look for in a sitter, you know, just thinking there's going to be so many people. And I'm I know there's a lot of people I'm sure marching into their therapist's office with Michael Pollan's book going, where do I sign up? You know, how do I do this? So I put that together, not for obviously those of us who are quite familiar with this, but plenty of people who have a lot of questions about it. And then included in the course is a 45 minute session with, with, with me as well. So just in the hopes of like, okay, I'll put this out and whoever finds it, I think we'll, we'll get a lot out of it. And I also speak to working with the spirits and, and ritual and, and microdosing and self-care, everything I could think of. I, I put together in this in this course because the fact is we don't have a touchstone in our modern Western culture really for the sacred. I mean, we really don't. And and for 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 the the the, the shamanic mystery and and I use that word shamanic just for lack of a better word, but you know, really, I mean all of us, every culture has very deep shamanic roots including Europe, contrary to what some people might think, deep, deep shamanic roots, you know, and we've lost that because everything has become so commercialized. And therefore, when you bring something like this into that kind of culture, it gets quickly profaned because people are just clueless. You know, they've lost their connection to nature. They've lost what it is to ritualize and to, to, to gather in in uh you know for certain ceremonies that kind of thing so it's very important it's like the more information is put forth out there for people the the better so that we have less of these kind of you know incidents where whatever someone goes trips go tripping and falls off a bridge high on mushrooms which my goodness is so 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 rare my goodness in any case 
I have my own uh, rules for do when I do it, and inspired by proper shamans seeing how they do it. But you know, for instance, I one of them is to uh, I need I want to be clean, and I try to clean the area or the house, like clean it, and uh, not have any obligations the next day, or not have a deadline over your head, or try and do it as close to nature, if not possible, at least in a place where you feel comfortable all these rules or, or guidelines and uh, it was it's very funny like because like a year and a half ago i did a ceremony where i for some reason broke every single rule <laughs> and uh, and i had a nightmarish experience and i all i could think about during the whole experience was why i should why did why those guys, they were true. They were all true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, less for people who've had bad trips, less than 2% of those people had a sitter. Less than two of them had a, you know, a trusted friend with them. They were alone. So, so that too is just, you know, it's, that can be very important, not for everybody, of course, but for most people, it really is a good idea to have just someone, at least someone nearby who knows you're journeying, because if you do get into a spot of trouble, it can just be incredibly helpful to have someone there to help you through that. And it's, it's difficult to be a sitter also, because you have to be really careful of what you say, because if you say something, it could like be the completely wrong thing to say, because you're not in that space that the person is in. Yeah, well, I find it good to say as little as possible. And if the person does maybe call out, you know, maybe to have sort of an agreement of like, look, I'm right here in the corner, you know, I'm going to be meditating, I'll be here. If you need me, just say my name and I will be right by your side. Because you know what? Sometimes, sometimes people get into a rough spot and really all they need is someone to hold their hand. And that human to human touch is so reassuring. And and other times too, people saying, well, is this going to be done soon? Is this going to be done soon? And you just, just assure them, yep, it, it, this will pass. I promise this will pass. You got this, you know, but yeah not saying much beyond that because you don't want to influence their journey and uh i mean other than to maybe sort of help them along if they're in a rough patch but yeah you don't know where they're at and and at the same time i also think it's very important that if you are with someone i'm speaking mushroom i'm not speaking about ayahuasca that's a whole other deal but i think they need to be sober they need to be sober they should not be on the mushroom themselves. I, I spoke with a, a fellow who told me about being in a group because there's a, a number of, of people out there now running groups where you and 10 people or more <laughs> will do the mushroom uh, over the course of the evening. And, and this, there was a person who was facilitating this and they took a couple grams of mushrooms and by God, went into a bad experience and then the participants were helping this person while they were on the mushroom just to get kind of get through the experience. So I, I just I think it's really important that your sitter be sober and for God's sake, no alcohol, none of that stuff. And, and it's not they don't need to be on the mushroom when another person's journey. 
that sounds like a nightmarish event, what you just said there. I One time I arranged uh, uh, a group mushroom event, and we had a sitter. Actually, we had two sitters. We were six people, and we had two sitters. And uh, uh, I wasn't a facilitator. I was a participant. So we, the sitters were the people who were going to take care of us. But I had... It was my home, it was my invitation, even though I had no responsibility during the ceremony. But I discovered that even so, when I was in the experience, I it uh, I, I was concerned about everybody else because it was like my responsibility. I realized it, it was a... I had... Uh, I hadn't appreciated the immense responsibility until I was in the experience myself. I said, oh my God, some of these people have never even done this before. And uh, thank God we had those two sitters that were very good. But uh, I realized then that I, uh, um, like you say, I mean, you should never do it if you're facilitating. And I wasn't even facilitating. I was just feeling responsible because it was in my house. <laughs> Sure, I can so understand that. I worked with a psychotherapist who came for one of the retreats that I do, but she was telling me she went to somewhere in the Caribbean and she sat with a group of people with someone who was facilitating it, but it was a group, right? It was, I think, 10 of them. And she said a young man near her went into like a deep process and then she realized she had to, she couldn't be where she was at. It took her out of her own experience. And she said, I'm a psychotherapist, you know, and no one was helping this guy and he needed help. And then she spent that night helping that guy, uh, get through whatever he was experiencing. And, and so, yeah, that's why I think it's really important, especially for people who are working with this for the first time, or they don't have a whole lot of experience, but to make sure that, you know, it's them and another person there for them because the group experience, I know it can be great for some people, but I just, like I said, I speak to a lot of people and I have not heard so many great things about the, the, the group because again, it can be very, you know, it can cut really take you out of your experience if someone gets loud or whatever. And then also we know sometimes it does get loud and, and then you have to squelch that so that you don't disturb other people. You know, I don't know. So yeah, I'm not a fan of the the group thing. The group I was mentioning was, I mean, I, we were all friends, so we all knew each other, but there was one, there was one incident where one of them who had never done it before uh, went into a sort of panic because he, he kept saying, I don't know who I am. And uh, eventually the sitters helped him and it, it was fine and they moved him to another room. But when he was kept saying, uh, I don't know who I am, one of my other friends said, you lucky bastard. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> but I remember, I mean, um, in ayahuasca ceremonies, there's a rule that they have in the their tradition that you're you're not allowed to touch because you can like infect even with the touch and 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 especially when you're like people from all over the world you don't know what kind of energies they have so you you don't touch but 
uh, when you need to go to the toilet, because uh, you purge in many ways, uh, you the one of the sitters usually helps you because you can't walk so good. So they usually help you go to the toilet. This person that al- always takes you to the toilet, it's always what I always look forward to the going to the toilet in in those ceremonies because it's like an angel like carrying you. It's, it's because you 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 get that you know somebody touches you, and uh, it's so intense uh, in uh, those experiences when you're touched. It's it's quite amazing what uh, how it feels when it doesn't feel like that normally. You know. Yeah, it's deeply meaningful. It's deeply deeply moving. Well, it, 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 because it, you feel. Well, I can't speak for other people, but I've done the ayahuasca as well, and I I had. And not in, I didn't go to the Amazon, but some very good people came here. But the immense kindness that I felt was really overwhelming from these people. Just immense kindness. So, so beautiful. And it's funny that because the person who is responsible for taking people to the toilet is kind of a, a, a low job or like when you look at it but then you realize after a few ceremonies that that person is highly revered as a saint uh, after the ceremonies you know yeah so if people want to find out more about you or look at your work or uh, get help from you how how can they do that they can go on my website and my website is my name shaunahome.com and that's s like sam h o n a g h H-O-M-E dot com. And on my website, you can contact me and there's courses available. I do sessions with people all over the world. I use Skype and and then I host these retreats. So if they want more information, they can go on my, there's a one-on-one retreats page on my site and there's a very long list of testimonials there that they can read and and then I also do a monthly newsletter called Wisdom Unfolding. And so every newsletter I've ever written is also can be found on my, my website and they can sign up for my newsletter. So, yeah. Thank you a lot for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you so much, Alex. I so, so enjoyed it. I'm really honored to be on your really fantastic podcast. Thank you again. Go to shanahome.com if you want to check out her work some more. I'll post the link in the program notes on nationalalchemist.com. And that's Shauna's is spelled S-H-O-N-A-G-H home.com. This summer, a true story. You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Everything is about to change. If you want to support the podcast, become a patron. For a few bucks a month, you'll get access to these episodes before everyone else. And you will also get access to a lot of additional material not available anywhere else. Join us at the Round Table of Divine Mystery over at patreon.com forward slash natural born alchemist check it out 
In episode 200, I mentioned the USB 200 that you can get. Basically, to commemorate the 200th episode, I decided to produce a very nice and organic-looking USB with the chemical structure of DMT engraved on it. This USB has 16 gigabytes of storage and is going to be filled with all 200 episodes. If you sit down and listen non-stop, it would take you almost eight days to listen to it all. And of course, it will also contain a lot of additional material previously only available to those that have supported the podcast on Patreon. So that is another 15 hours plus right there. And uh, there will be some photos, essays, and other crap as well. (laughs) So basically, the USB will be crammed with stuff. And why should you buy it if you can... Listen to all the episodes online for free. Well, it's an excellent way to support the podcast. And you can also get all the episodes neatly packaged, plus a ton of additional material. And uh, don't forget, you'll also get a beautiful, natural-looking and psychedelic USB. And what more could you ask? You can, of course, transfer all the contents and then have an empty 16GB USB 2.0 ready to be filled with whatever you want. Go to naturalbornalchemist.com forward slash merch forward slash USB 200 or simply click on the link in the program notes. Okay, enough of that. Now I want to talk Pompoko. Pompoko is an animated film from 1994 by the great Isao Takahata. The phrase Pompoko in the title refers to the sound of tanukis drumming their own bellies and tanuki is like a Japanese raccoon kind of thing animal and uh, in Japanese folklore these raccoons are portrayed as a highly sociable mischievous creature and they're able to use illusion science to transform into almost anything and they're too fun loving and too fond of tasty treats to be a real threat unlike the kitsune the foxes and other shape shifters. Visually, the tanuki, these raccoons in this film, Pompoko, are depicted in three distinct ways at various times. As realistic animals, as anthropomorphic animals that occasionally wear clothes, and as cartoon-like figures based on the manga of Shigeru Sugiura. Prominent testicles are an integral part of the tanuki folklore of these raccoons and they are shown and referred to throughout the film and also used frequently in their shape-shifting. This film is a beautiful, touching piece of art that I recommend everyone to watch. I never understood why Disney or even Pixar, why they're so popular. These Japanese animated films can stand up to even live-action drama even. And uh, the reason I talk a bit about Pompoko right now is because uh, it's about shape-shifting. It's about illusions and it's about environmental activism and I think in a sense that this podcast is about those things as well but that's not the only reason I'm talking about Pompoko I want to close this episode with the theme song from Pompoko called Itsudemo Darekaga by Hasso Gakudan and I'm sure if you, I have any Japanese listeners that all these Japanese names I mentioned has been completely butchered. But I do my best. So I want to end with that song. And next week I'm going to talk about some journeys I've been on. Freedom is in the mind.